Hello, all my friends, family, dedicated listeners, and the billions upon billions of other people who have no real idea who I am. To Global and the Granite State Podcast, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. To the 99.999999 repeating percent of people in the world who do not know, my name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, and your host for this wonderful podcast. Now, while some of you may know me already, I don't know who you are, unless you tell me you are listening. So, I invite you all to send me an email with your thoughts on the podcast here. All criticism will be promptly ignored, while all praise will be greatly amplified throughout every tool at my disposal. Hmm, sounds like someone would make a great governmental leader here. All joking aside, I would really love to know more about who is listening so I can better tailor to your needs. Drop me a line at T-H-O-R-G-A-N at W-A-C-N-H dot org or find me on the socials. As always, a huge thank you to our wonderful donors and supporters who make these programs possible. Without your support, I would actually have to admit to myself that I only do this because I love the sound of my own voice, which blatantly is untrue and unfounded. An extra special thank you to our series sponsor, McLean Middleton, for your ongoing support. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms, with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. Okay, as the dictator, I, I mean fearless leader of this program, I demand we get started now. set a scene for you. After the death of a prominent Chinese Communist Party leader, the temperature in the country started to boil over, focusing on inflation, lack of opportunity, and strict government controls of daily life. Starting with student protests and expanding to the wider community, these protests required extraordinary efforts by the CCP to bring things under control. The state of affairs could have accurately described the protests leading up to the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, but what I am really talking about is the current protests in China against the zero-COVID lockdown policy. So, let's start with what exactly the zero-COVID policy is and why it has created such unrest across so many areas of the country. Well, they dealt with it by this zero-COVID approach, which they had the tools, they had the capability to be able to stop the spread. Well, initially, they do this in Wuhan by closing down everything. Just tell everybody, you're not moving. You're going to be isolated within your compounds in order to prevent the spread. And then all during this time, they were developing the COVID tests. They always had better production of masks because in Asia, including China, during the wintertime, they're always wearing masks. We 
tend to forget that this is a country that oftentimes many flu origins are coming from China and then they radiate out. So they've had experiences not just with flu, but also with things like SARS and so forth over the years. And so they're far more sensitive to communicable diseases. That is Dr. Chris Reardon, a professor at the University of New Hampshire, who has dedicated his studies to all things China. So from the get-go, the Chinese Communist Party tells everyone, just stay home and we'll get this figured out. Interestingly enough, it seems as if the government focuses a bit more on the command and control aspect of these lockdowns, rather than necessarily finding a way out of them. The system began as more cases popped up around China. They investigated what was the best way to control it. And by 2022, let's say January 22, let's take it up to two years and to say to 2022, January, everybody in China, they've again jumped technologies. So everybody right now has uh, cell phones. Most people have cell phones. And if you wanted to go somewhere, you not only had to have your cell phone with you, but then you had a pass that was being broadcast from the central government that this based on a QR code. And so if you were fine and if everybody in your building was fine and your area was fine, then the QR code would be green and you would be able to get out of your building. You would be able to get a bus. You would be able to get on the subway. You would be able to do whatever you wanted to do. However, if there was somebody in your building or somebody in the bus or some or somewhere there was a question, then that QR code was never going to be green. It was going to be yellow or even the worst color, red. So relying on some of the same technology they were using for their social credit score program, which housed a ton of data about you and government servers all collected through your phone, they were able to constantly monitor the movements of citizens while implementing a rigorous testing regime. It seems that anytime you leave your home in China, you have to have your cell phone with you to do anything, including getting back into your housing complex. Through the power of technology, they were able to identify people who were in close proximity to each other, determine who had COVID when, and mandate isolation for anyone who may have been exposed. As a quick note, since I spoke with Dr. Reardon, China has announced that they are retiring this program and will no longer be tracking COVID through people's phones. I guess you could say that the people that were lucky were caught inside their buildings and then they were quarantined inside their buildings for weeks until the people would be undergoing the nucleic tests, which, by the way, they would be taking every 72 hours. And then as long as if there was no more evidence of COVID in the area, then the lockdown would be lifted. For those who were actually sick or had been interacting with sick people, their QR codes would be red. And oftentimes they would be, if not all the time, they would be shifted off to these quarantine centers. Now, these quarantine centers are at this very moment being expanded. And you are there, restricted from seeing anybody, and your food is being brought to you. You have to go through testing. Oftentimes, you see a variety of them. Either they're in large uh, conference centers with beds being spread all out with no individual uh, separation, or you've got these container boxes in which you and your family or whoever's with you are isolated. Now, I'm not sure what would be worse. Being stuck in my 250 to 330 square foot apartment where you cannot leave the building even to get food, or being forced into a makeshift COVID detention center where you have even 
less control over your life. Needless to say, I can only imagine the frustration. As this policy continued to be rolled out and people wrapped their heads around what it meant to be caught near someone with COVID, you saw some pretty wild things start to happen. So for two, close to three years now, that the Chinese had been under the system in which they could be in a mall and then somebody, because at everywhere you're going, they're testing whether or not you got COVID. If one person came down with the virus, everybody in the mall would be isolated. And you see these scrambles of people just rushing to get out of the exits because they're afraid that they're going to be caught by this lockdown. And it's really not just a lockdown. It's really incarceration of patients. Maybe some lessons to be learned here. But I will leave that to you, the listener, to decide. Okay, so you have these very intrusive lockdowns that actually still continue today. And people are trying their best not to be caught up in them. There are even reports of government officials installing barricades, putting sticks of rebar in front of doors, and wiring front doors closed, all in an effort to stop the spread of the virus. More on that later. Interestingly enough, China has been resistant to bring in outside vaccines and has instead relied upon the Sinovac vaccine, which is based on older technology. You would have figured that getting the population vaccinated with the most effective tools would have been in the best interest of being able to end these lockdowns, but in an effort to show their own self-reliance and that the CCP has the best response to everything, they went a different direction. They wanted to vaccinate everybody in the next year or so. They were able to vaccinate about 90%. They say, they say 90% of the people, but that's vaccinated once. In a report released by the Singapore Center for Infectious Disease, the Chinese vaccine was compared up against Pfizer and Moderna's mRNA vaccines. Two doses of Pfizer and Moderna prevented severe cases in more than 90%, while Sinovac's two shots only prevented severe cases in 60%. And that is with two shots, not one. So, in the face of a less efficient vaccine, the lockdowns continued. Something interesting to note. We have no idea how many people actually have died of COVID in China itself. I'm a fellow that does foreign economic policy in China, and I never trust any of the numbers that I see. So they say at this point that there were about 4,000 people that died. Well, there's 10,000 people already dead in Hong Kong and 15,000 in Taiwan. So, you know, the only obvious reason why they're not reporting this correctly goes back to the original reason for, for the zero COVID policy is because the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, had promoted this idea. He was very proud of the fact that China had discovered the way to be able to control COVID. And looking back in 2021, when, uh, for instance, in the United States, that you had the former president talk about using infrared light to be able to cure COVID, you know, the kind of craziness that went on in the West, where the Chinese were sitting there saying, no, you know, we don't have a problem here. This is the way we're dealing with it. And it was the China model, one in which that Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party was promoting throughout the world to be able to show the rest of the world that, yes, not only does China have the best technology, the best techniques, but we had the political system. The Communist Party has been able to lead the people and be able to combat COVID without the hundreds of thousands, if not million people dying that you had in the United States. So it was for Xi Jinping. This was not only a source of pride, zero COVID, 
but it was something to be able to demonstrate the importance of the Chinese Communist Party and of authoritarian leadership and the ineffectiveness of democracies that couldn't get their act together and had so many people die. And this is something that is not just being promoted on the outside, but it's also been promoted within China, who believes that everybody on the outside world is dying because they do not have this zero COVID. Of course, it wouldn't be a problem if they had just had bought the rights to be able to produce a mRNA vaccine in China, but they can't do that because Xi Jinping, the originator of zero COVID, had promoted this idea of self-reliance and the, the China model and the Chinese people had the best technology and can do everything by themselves. Well, they can't. Therefore, the Chinese government kind of got themselves stuck in a tricky spot here. With the population that would be highly vulnerable to the virus if zero COVID was ended, they were incentivized to continue to insist that this was the only path forward and continue to shout about how great this program was. The only problem is, after a couple of years of forced isolations, a decrease in economic activity because of it, and the uncertainty of it all. You never know when you're leaving your compound whether or not you're going to be able to get back to home. You could be leaving your kids and your compound could be, and it's not just the building, could be the entire area will be closed off because somebody's come down with COVID and everything's been put under lockdown. People that have been caught in their apartment buildings without food. And you see these pictures that are coming up at nighttime, the high-rise buildings in the urban areas, and people are screaming and yelling and saying, we need food, we're, we're starving. And they try and get that food or they try and, and leave the compounds. And you have this phalanx of uh, police that are dressed up as medical workers. They call the Dabai, the big whites. And there's one uh, Western commentator that says they look like the stormtroopers from Star Wars. Some of them are actually health workers. Some of them are local management people, party people, and others are military and or police. And they're there to enforce these crackdowns, these incarceration of these people. So the people have just gotten to the point where they've had it. Okay, so zero COVID may not be going as well as the Chinese government would like, with millions of people under forced quarantine at certain times. But this is not the only thing that has led to these protests. On top of this, you've got other problems that have been facing China that the foreigners are not paying as much attention to. Lack of water, a financial system that has imploded because that in factories have been stopped because of COVID. You've got people who have invested all of their earnings into buildings that are non-existent. In other words, if you want to get married, you have to have an apartment. Many people have tried to buy them and then they put down all this money and then they're not built. And this is one of many problems that the Chinese normal citizen, especially in the urban areas, are faced with. So food, water, living. And then all of a sudden you have these local yokels who are coming in and saying, you can't do this. So there is a limit to what Chinese people can take. Now, I lived there for about five years, and I was always amazed at the patience of people. Because when you're living under an authoritarian system, you know, you don't talk back. Automatically slap down if you do something like that. If a fight breaks out, then everybody crowds around. It's almost like this giant pressure cooker that they see a fight between two people or whatever. Everything stopped. I was on a bus in, in the middle of Beijing in, in the mid-80s, and the bus stopped for about a half hour, about 10 o'clock at night. Everybody stopped to watch the fight. 
And it's like this release because of all this kind of keeping it in to accept you know, authoritarian rule. That pressure cooker in the past month or two exploded. And the catalyst was the fire that took place in Ulumunchi, Urumqi in Xinjiang province. To me, this is the really interesting part. For those who have listened to our podcast in the past, you probably heard us talk about what is going on with the Uyghurs. But for those of you who don't, the Uyghurs are an ethnic Muslim minority group that the Chinese government has been credibly accused of committing a genocide against. These people have been placed into forced labor, quote-unquote, re-education camps, have been subjected to forced marriages to Han Chinese men, and the government has basically tried to wipe any bit of these people from the records, all in the name of anti-terrorism. So, a fire in a building that killed 10 Uyghurs might not have even registered a few years ago for most Chinese. But, and this is my personal opinion, independent of anything, it seems logical that this fire opened the eyes of many Chinese to the fact that the repression brought upon this minority group can and has been brought to all of China through zero COVID. But I'm not the Chinese scholar here. They say that about 10 people died. And the primary reason was that the fire brigade were unable to get into the building because there were metal bars preventing people from exiting. There were barriers, barricades all around the building. So the fire brigades could not get to the building. So the delay of the fire brigade getting there and saving people resulted in the death of 10 people. That's what the leaders of Xinjiang have said, that there are 10 people died. A lot of people don't believe that it was just 10 people. Again, you don't trust Chinese numbers. Seriously, go online and check out the ways in which some of these people were barricaded into their homes. It is pretty crazy stuff. Now, after the fire, protests begin to break out. It acted like a catalyst to Chinese unrest in the urban areas in, and not just in the big areas of Beijing and Shanghai and Wuhan, but all, including in Ulamuji. There, that was the very first off, there was a big demonstration in Ulamuji, in which you would think that the party and the and the military had such strict control to prevent the Muslim terrorists, quote unquote terrorists. Well, they were both a Uyghur and Han out in the streets in. Ulamuchi demonstrating against not necessarily the Communist Party, but the zero COVID strategy. We are getting indirectly news from the Chinese diaspora because through the leadership of Xi Jinping, they've basically kicked out all the Western journalists. There are still a few, like from Deutsche Welle and so forth. Most of them are not in Hong Kong either, so they're based in Taiwan. We are getting information that there are over 100 different demonstrations that took place, demonstrations in 100 different cities. One of the catalysts were students, so that you saw the demonstrations. We would see demonstrations taking place in Tsinghua University, which is China's equivalent to MIT. There was demonstrations at Peking University, which is so-called Harvard. And in Shanghai, they were demonstrations that first initially focused along the major streets. They're called uh, Ulumuchi Street. And they, they kept returning back uh, last weekend, kept coming back. So at least for the first night or two, things were getting fairly raucous. And it was not just in these one or two places, but 100 plus places. And students were joining in 
And just like back in June 4th, when uh, the uh, Tiananmen movement of 1989, that there was concern because of student involvement, but also because that you had workers becoming involved, so forth. Uh, these demonstrations initially had more of a student flavor to it, but then you could see in the audience, there were a lot of people that were participating because everybody's essentially been affected by these lockdowns as well. It is very hard to figure how many people participated in these protests, but these were bigger than the typical protests you see across China every year. There's certainly something different about them, and there was a trend growing within them to become more political. Interestingly enough, many people began holding up blank pieces of printer paper at these protests, which is not the first time the world has seen this. See Russia earlier this year, Hong Kong in 2020, and even Great Britain in April of 2022. Typically, it has become a symbol of protest against censorship, which is broad and wide-ranging in China, but also allows disparate groups to share a symbol and attach their own meaning to it, something important that is fueling these protests. In addition, many protests have adopted everyday items as symbols, as a means to confuse AI censorship algorithms and hopefully slip some content through. However, the Chinese government has proven adept at dissipating these protests with a soft touch. These demonstrations have, not surprisingly, been quieted down. In the non-Chinese press, they're saying, well, the Chinese leadership has listened to the people and they're responding by they're lifting the restrictions on COVID, but that's not what's really happening. What's been happening is that they've been restricting people gathering together they would send out a red QR code to those people living in particular areas to prevent them from uh, getting back together because that there was a record of where the previous days when the demonstration had taken place, they were finding out where these people were living. So they just gave all of those people either red or yellow QR codes. So the Orwellian control 1984 is alive and well in Beijing right now. Not always working well, but it is still a way to control these things. There also have been, the euphemism is, is having tea. In other words, they invite people to the local police station of discussions. They're not necessarily doing that. They're actually going to students and participants, many people demonstrating against the restrictions. And these are the, the local officials, the party officials, the police, and intimidating, if not arresting, beating up people, which is one of the reasons why you are not seeing these demonstrations taking place. This is the, the norm. This is something that is in the Chinese playbook. Now you go, wow, when you saw those demonstrations the other weekend and you're going, you know, democracy is alive and well in China. Well, for those of us that follow China, we're kind of sitting there going, all right, we're looking at our watches and going, all right, that's step one. And that step one is when disturbances occur. You let them go. You prevent them from breaking out further, but you allow them to let off steam. And so that's what happened in the past couple of days. Students, the people that were complaining, they were able to let off steam. They were holding up white pieces of paper. You know, this is called the paper revolution or the A4 revolution. And then there is one time in which you're hearing some discussion about down with Xi Jinping, who is the Chinese Communist Party a general secretary, or down with the Communist Party. 
I'm not quite sure how widespread that was, but that's the first step. The next step was to isolate them all. And they did this by using their QR codes. They did this by telling students, for instance, uh, you're going to be going home a little bit earlier. We're going to pay for you to, to have a free transport tickets to the train station or the bus station and getting out early for Lunar New Year, which is coming up in January. Now, at the same time, the government is out there walking back the rhetoric on how bad COVID is and that in this current form, it is controllable without the strict lockdowns, allowing them to roll back zero COVID, not because of the protests, of course, but because of the science. It will be interesting to see where this heads, as there are two scenarios that might come out of this easing, if that easing even actually happens. So either they, they're not going to recognize that there's a problem and still deal with it, or what they're going to do is they're going to blow up the examples and say, look, we're non-zero COVID. We've got more and more people doing this. We need to reimpose these things. So in other words, teach the people that uh, zero COVID is good for them. Either way, Xi Jinping's primary concern is to be able to maintain control over the state, the party's control of the state, not just his control, but the party's control of the state. Because right now, you know, l'état c'est moi, that he is the state. He is the party. So I'm assuming that he's going to do whatever he needs to, to do to preserve this. This is certainly a situation that is well worth watching. Not only does it provide insights into Chinese control over its population, it has begun to put questions into the minds of many about the level of control that the party maintains over this system of government. Will these protests peter out and disappear? Will a stronger government crackdown turn into another Tiananmen Square? Is lasting change possible? in this country where one party rule has become so embedded with one leader? Only time will tell. However, it is important that people be aware of what is going on in this country and the broader impacts it has for the world. Protests, lockdowns, repression, human rights abuses, all impose costs on the world and the global economy. The more that Chinese people express their anger at their government, the more likely it is that the government will look to direct that anger elsewhere. Could that be Taiwan or another neighbor? Could that be targeted towards the US itself? Again, time will tell. Thank you to everyone who listened to today's episode. I appreciate you taking an interest in these global discussions and hope that you will take some time to think about the various ways in which these protests and the overall outcome could impact your life, as well as the way you can make your own impact. The more you know about an issue, the better conversations you can have, and the stronger your community can become through shared understanding. With that in mind, please share the Global in the Granite State through your network, and let everyone know how awesome we are. This has been the Global in the Granite State podcast a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Tim Horgan? Well, you know the deal. He does it all and really hopes that you like the end result. Let him, I mean me, know what you think through email, our website, social media, or by dropping a comment or rating on this episode. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Tension by Mr. Smith. Thanks for listening. 
and we will hear you in the new year.